for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I'm Julia Clare And I'm Kate Willett Kate, we are... We are on the computer. Uh, Kate's in San Francisco right now, so we're uh, we're on the phone. We're on Skype. This is new and different for us. We're usually in the same room, and Kate appears. To, are you? I'm in my friend's uh, I basement. I was going to say, it looks like she's in a basement. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my friend's basement office in San Francisco. I think that this was on the whole a, a terrible day for the socialist feminist among us. Certainly was. And before we before we jump into that, um, there was there was a topic that I really wanted us to touch on that we ended up having to um, kind of allow to fall by the wayside because everything unfolded so quickly with Iran. Um, and that is that about two weeks ago on January second. Um, over 200 members of Congress signed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court uh, recommending that they re-examine and eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, this includes 39 Republican senators. Almost all of them were uh, Republicans, 200, and five of the 207 were Republicans, and there were two Democrats. The two Democrats who signed were Representatives Colin C. Peterson of Minnesota and Dan Lipinski of Illinois. Um, and they're both obviously from the uh, very conservative wing of the Democratic Party. And this, uh, I'm, it kind of was a blip on uh, in the news cycle. It obviously there's been so much happening. On the foreign policy side of things, if you can even call it that, I remain very upset and alarmed by this. Uh, it's 80% of congressional Republicans uh, signed this uh, this amicus brief. The current makeup of the Supreme Court is such that if they wanted to, tomorrow they could overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the main uh, that was one of the main concerns when Kennedy retired, right? Because he he was one of the uh, last roadblocks to overturning Roe versus Wade, and so now, you know, it's it remains unclear what the Supreme Court will do. They definitely can overturn it. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of people on the left, both liberals and leftists, are really hoping that Ruth Bader Ginsburg does not retire. She just announced that she was cancer-free, so that is great. That is um, good. But, yeah, I mean, this is really fucked up. Um, one thing that kind of especially struck me about this is when you were mentioning the Democrats who uh, the Democrats who signed on to this, one, Dan Lipinski, has been, uh, is backed by the DCCC, and last year, the DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, banned vendors and staff who work with uh, opponents to incumbents. Now, he is being challenged by a progressive, pro-choice female opponent named Marie Newman. And the DCCC is still 
supporting him. Nancy Pelosi has endorsed him. And, you know, I think this, this just really goes to show that when it comes to things like being pro-choice, there's a lot of nuance. The DCCC is just an absolute disgrace. <laughs> and they have shown time and again that they support more conservative establishment candidates um, over, you know, they really put try to put their thumb on the scale for for people who fit that profile. And I mean, if we want the Democratic Party to move into the future, I can't think of a worse way to do that than discouraging primary challengers. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, I, you know, we've we've talked a lot about about Nancy Pelosi on this on this podcast. And one of the things um, that even even when I was, uh, you know, much more generous with my my criticisms of her, one of the things that always really was mind numbing to me was the time when she was asked if there is room in the Democratic Party for reporters' words, pro-life candidate, my words, anti-choice candidates, and she said, yes. And um, I just want to say, no. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel there exactly is such the a thing as going too big tent. I understand that we're trying to, like, coalition build, but uh, I don't want to build a coalition with anyone who is anti-choice. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I was happy to see Ocasio-Cortez decline to pay her dues to the DCCC. Um, Which, by the way, only 11 percent of congressional Democrats have paid their DCCC dues. The DCCC is uh, regularly backing candidates who do not have popular support over candidates who have broad popular support on their districts, not only are they morally wrong, but they're responsible for like a bunch of different losses and they just suck for a bunch of reasons. So I think, you know, the people who were getting mad about this were very, very misguided. Well, that's, um, and that's and, also another, I mean, to your point, and I was so frustrated with the media coverage of that, but to your point, this is another way that the media really frames things um, <laughs> in such a device, in such a divisive way um, by, you know, highlighting that, that AOC didn't pay her dues and omitting the fact that 90% of congressional Dems don't pay their dues either. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like they're you trying the media to, to alienate her and make her seem like a, a polarizing figure when in fact she's doing what everyone else is doing. <laughs> This uh, brief, this I guess an amicus brief, it was just absolutely disgusting, and uh, we oppose it. And you know, I mean, it's just uh, I just I know, just want like I it it makes me nervous not only because obviously this is such a drastic step um, towards what we've kind of known has been coming, especially with the appointments of. Um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, both of whom were hand More like Gorsuch. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> both of whom were <laughs> hand selected by the Heritage Foundation. Um, Donald Trump came into office saying that he was going to appoint anti choice justices. That was actually like one of his campaign promises. That's why, you know, the evangelicals love him, even though he is morally bankrupt, obviously. Um, but 
yeah, it's really uh, scary and uh, we don't love to see it. And I really wish that the kind of, that just the daily erosion of women's reproductive health rights were covered more thoroughly um, or at I, all. I completely agree. Um, I also think that, you know, just kind of talking about things that are very relevant to now. I mean, one of the things that disgusts me the most is that part of one of the people who may overturn Roe versus Wade or roll back Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is a, a subsequent ruling that says that states may not uh, put uh, undue burdens on women seeking abortions. And so what that means is a lot of states have uh, really fucked around with the idea of what's an undue burden and, you know, do make it really impossible, um, have, you know, vaginal ultrasounds required and all kinds of disgusting things. But, um, you know, one of the people that's going to potentially roll back Roe versus Wade even further is Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court largely because our boy Joe Biden uh, did not allow uh, additional witnesses to back up Anita Hill's testimony when she was testifying before Congress that Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her. And there were multiple other people that were sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas. And uh, Joe Biden wouldn't allow the evidence in um, and, you know, he was uh, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So he was pretty much the only person that could have made that decision. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're uh, if you're a new Reply Guys listener, um, I would suggest that you go back and listen to our drag his ass Joe Biden episode with our, our pal Josh Gondelman. Um, as well as the uh, abortion episode that we did that was like our, our second episode. And we talked in that episode about the Hyde Amendment, which was something that uh, Senator Hyde uh, wanted. <laughs> Basically, a long time ago, Republicans decided that, you know, if they weren't able to stop everybody from getting abortions, they would stop poor women from, from getting abortions. And uh, the Hyde Amendment... Uh, prohibits any federal funding like Medicaid from paying for abortions. And so um, it is especially difficult for low-income women to get abortions. Uh, the Hyde Amendment has, you know, there's several people in Congress that are pushing to repeal it, including Bernie Sanders um, and Pramila Jayapal. But uh, yeah, I mean, even Nancy Pelosi has said, you know, it's it's not the time. It's not the time to repeal this. So I don't know. Abortion in this country is a is a complicated issue and i don't think that is as simple as republicans oppose it although most of them do almost all of them um but you know the democratic party can be pretty bad on this as well and it's in my opinion very important to elect not only democrats but pro-choice democrats who want abortions to be accessible for all people who need them not just uh rich people or not just people with means. You right. Know? Right. Because as you know, as has been pointed out numerous times, uh, wealthy women will always have access to abortion. And that yep. is true. That was true in places where it was totally illegal, like um, until very recently, Ireland, like wealthy women in Ireland would fly to um, 
UK. the UK to to, um, to have the procedures. But, yeah, uh, wealthy women will always have access to abortion. And that's not who we're fighting for, obviously. Um, it's just a very, uh, it's a very sad and dark time. And we're just, uh, everybody's doing great. <laughs> Um, I'm thriving personally. Um, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit today about, uh, this kind of, uh, devastating <sighs> bomb from Warren's campaign. So, you know, the backstory on this is there was, a, a, a script that came out a couple days ago that supposedly the Sanders campaign was using. That basically was telling volunteers who were canvassing and phone banking to say, I like Elizabeth Warren. She is my second choice, but her supporters are affluent and they are people who will vote anyway. And it's important to bring working class people to the polls. So Warren's campaign responded and said that Bernie was trashing Elizabeth Warren. It came out. Uh, that this was not an official script of the Sanders campaign. This was uh, something that I think a low-level volunteer had posted in Slack. And then today, we're recording on Monday, uh, the Warren campaign, well, I think earlier on uh, CNN and then later on BuzzFeed, uh, anonymous sources said that uh, Bernie Sanders had told Elizabeth Warren that he did not believe that a woman could win the presidency and that, you know, and then uh, later, you know, hours later, uh, Warren issued a statement herself that said that, yes, indeed, Bernie Sanders did say this to her. Uh, Julia, what are your thoughts? Well, okay, so from the wording of her statement, it doesn't sound like and Natalie Sher pointed this out, that she didn't ascribe those words to him exactly in her statement. Um, she just said that I said, I believe like a woman could be president and he disagreed. I, I don't have it in front of me. Exactly. My thing about this, I just don't, I think we always have to, you know, this is, this is part of, of media literacy, which we talked about with, um, with George Severus is, the people who are doing the quote unquote reporting on this, like have a vested interest in pulling at the threads of anyone to the left of Pete Buttigieg, essentially. Um, and that includes CNN, Buzzfeed, Washington Post, New York times, certainly the New York times. Um, you know, I have seen Warren supporters and Bernie supporters kind of use more like centrist or right wing talking points about the other candidate when it kind of behooves them. And I, I just don't think it's smart. The, like we're up against so much and it is exactly what Joe Biden's campaign wants. And it's exactly what, all of like the corporate media and the billionaires want to see that the two people who could most threaten the like oligarchy that we have 
um, in the Democratic primary at each other's throats. I don't like any of it. Kate, I can feel that you have thoughts and yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, that's where I fall in it. I don't even like I don't even want to entertain this nonsense because we're a few weeks away from Iowa. Like obviously it's going to start getting dirty anyways, but unfortunately Joe Biden is still polling in first in first place in so many of the polls that I see and that is like my main concern right now. Um yeah, I hate this whole situation and I wish I were dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, earlier today, you know, I, it was very strange that the sources in both BuzzFeed and CNN were anonymous. And I definitely had the thought that, you know, perhaps this is some kind of like media shit thing and it isn't necessarily coming directly from the Warren campaign. But it seems like it was because she issued a statement herself that says Bernie and I met for more than two hours in December 2018 to discuss the 2020 election, our past work together and our shared goals, beating Donald Trump and taking back our government from the wealthy and well-connected and building an economy that works for everyone. Among the topics that came up was what would happen if Democrats nominated a female candidate. I thought a woman could win. He disagreed. So, you know, I think I don't, the way I see this is, you know, while I definitely entertains earlier today the idea that this was not coming directly from Elizabeth Warren. It, it does seem like it is uh, at this point. Um, I do feel that it is a very sinister campaign attack. And, you know, I, I don't I don't think that there's any truth to uh, Bernie saying that he didn't believe that a woman could win. And the reason that I don't think so is because Bernie Sanders asked Elizabeth Warren to run in 2016 when the draft Warren movement was uh, was going on. He only ran after she declined to run. To me, this is, I, I think this is kind of playing right into the narrative that Bernie Sanders is uh, a sexist, which has been a long standing thing. It, it seems like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly not a coincidence. I think that we see this coming um, when Warren's campaign has recently had uh, a lot of trouble with fundraising and is going down in the polls. Uh, I absolutely share your concern that Joe Biden um, is still number one in a lot of polls. I, I, I'm, I'm very worried about that. But um, I don't think that attacking the front runner, which is with something that, in, in my opinion, is, you know, either a fabrication or, or a gross misinterpretation. Like in Sanders' statement himself, he said that, you know, he he did feel that Donald Trump would make sexist attacks against a female candidate, just like he did with Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, there is a, a possibility that that statement was interpreted to, you know, mean that he didn't think that a, a woman could win. But I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see any evidence that, that he believes that. I mean, there's uh, quotes of him from 1987 and 1988 saying a, a woman could be president. I, I don't know. I, to me, this just really feels like like a very uh, kind of inappropriate political attack. She goes on to reference punditry. Um, and that's what I think, to your point, what she was what they may have been discussing, which is the kind of 
overwhelming attacks that a female candidate could uh, or would receive as the nominee. Um, again, she doesn't ascribe those exact words to him. She said, I thought a woman could win. He disagreed. I have no interest in discussing this private meeting any further because Bernie and I have far more in common than our differences on punditry. Um, I'm in this race to talk about what's broken in this country, yada, yada, yada. Um, I know Bernie is in the race for the same reason. We have been friends and allies in this fight for a long time, and I have no doubt we will continue to work together to defeat Donald Trump and put our government on the side of the people. I just don't like, I think that, do I, I don't think that this was like, this doesn't strike me as like a, a directive from the top. I think there were some like st stupid people who work for her campaign who kind of backed the situation into this corner. I just don't like, obviously I don't think that Bernie Sanders is whatever say in so many words ever that a woman couldn't win because it's been shown time and again for decades that he himself doesn't believe that. And I don't, uh, I just really, I just, I, I hate to see this. I, uh, I'm very frustrated because there's so much at stake and, um, this is actually, this goes into the reason why I get so mad at Jacobin because of their kind of like relentless coverage or coverage, relentless criticisms about Warren specifically. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren should not be uh, attacking each other with untrue statements. I 100% yeah. agree that I, I think, you know, at times, I, I mean, it's like, I agree with you that a Warren presidency would be like infinitely better than a Biden or a Buttigieg president. But I, I personally see this situation as entirely instigated by Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, I don't I mean, especially on the heels of what happened yesterday, where she characterized uh, Bernie Sanders as trashing her by the statement, you know, that her supporters are more affluent. I mean, the the supposed script that was you know, not even part of the campaign said, I like her. She was my second choice. That's how it started. I mean, that's not, that's not trashing. And, and I see Elizabeth Warren kind of weaponizing victimhood in a way that I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable with, not only as a socialist, but as a feminist as well, because it's like, when I say that someone did something sexist to me, I, I want to be believed. And I think that statements like this Make a mockery of that. And I, I'm, I'm very upset by it, you know? I mean, I, okay, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I see her painting herself as a victim per se. I have seen like the near attendants of the world using believe women, which is literally about, <laughs> was a, a slogan invented about rape survivors, essentially. Yeah. Um, and kind of bastardizing that to this political purpose, which I think is gross. I don't know. I think that there's kind of a double standard here uh, in terms of the way that I've seen, you know, I have a lot of like Bernie supporters and Warren supporters in my timeline and I'm a Bernie supporter myself. Um, so I just, I do think that 
there's a lot of things that are used by both camps when it's kind of politically convenient for them. And I don't think that every, I don't think that inherently everything the Sanders camp does is in good faith and inherently everything the Warren camp does is in no, bad faith. And that I, is, I don't think so either. I don't well, think so either. I think a lot of the things that the Warren camp has done has, you know, been in good faith. I think, you know, I mean, she's, she's done some things that I like, you know, she has, uh, centered childcare early in her campaign. That's something that, you know, while Bernie Sanders does support universal childcare, uh, it, it's not something that he's made a, a central issue. And that's an issue that's very important to me as a feminist. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I, I would rather see Elizabeth Warren win than anyone besides Bernie Sanders. Right. And I think that the, the criticism that, her campaign has attracted much more affluent supporters. I don't think that's trashing. I think that that's a valid criticism, and I'd love to see her actually address that. Why hasn't her campaign attracted working-class support in the way that Sanders does? I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that her policies do not go as far. She has not uh, built a multiracial working-class coalition. It hasn't been her focus. She's not focused on building a movement. In my opinion, the campaign is is much more centered around her as a politician versus the not me us feeling of Bernie's campaign. And I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. We don't know for sure whether this uh, story was, uh, you know, whether she gave the directive to uh, release this story. But, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it's likely that three or four of her closest aides leaked this story without her knowing something about it. I mean, it, it seems like it's a, at a very uh, convenient moment for that to be true when um, it, you know, when it comes to the decline that we've seen in her fundraising. And yeah, I don't think that these I don't think that Bernie Sanders should be making untrue statements about Elizabeth Warren um, or attacking her in any kind of uh, disgusting way. And if I saw him do that, I would be certainly very, very mad about it. But I I just I haven't seen it so far. So it's it's kind of uh, theoretical to me. This is my issue, is that we should not be attacking the person who is like it or not the ideologically the closest to us in the Democratic primary field Um, or and if and I, I will disagree with you. I don't I I think I think that the the campaign the idea that her campaign centers more around her is I, I don't agree with that. I think that, that was absolutely true of Hillary. Her slogan was literally I'm with her. Um I mean Warren's slogan is like big structural change. Everything is like is about kind of the mechanisms and the machinations of, of government. I don't think uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's one I've I've certainly heard that criticism, but I think that's just one of the ways that people are dying to conflate Warren and Clinton because they are both blonde white women. <laughs> like, I mean, that's not how I feel about it. I certainly started this primary feeling like, you know, I, I actually started this primary feeling like, oh, man, both of these people would be certainly the best president that we ever had. And I was leaning towards Bernie, but I would have been, you know, completely happy with Warren. But I mean, uh, I mean, my, my negative feelings about Elizabeth Warren, I, you know, I don't, 
they have been uh, inspired by her campaign, by her her back and forth on Medicare for all, her uh, her response to Bolivia, her response on Iran. I, I mean, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I would certainly I would certainly be against it if the Sanders campaign was somehow spreading falsehoods about Elizabeth Warren. I, I just. I just haven't seen that yet. No, no, no. Um, I think I'm, not, it is, I'm uh, not saying anything to that effect. I'm just saying yeah. that the, and again, you and I are both Bernie supporters. This is classic, this is a classic t- Twitter situation where two people who agree on 98% of things can find the little things that we don't agree on. But it's, I think that the idea, j- just in particular, the idea that her campaign is is centers on her only uh, or that's like kind of the focus on it rather than um, a more collective, larger scale thing. It's just like not I I haven't seen there's I, I just don't see it. And to me, it is a I mean, just from all of her her campaign messaging and her slogans and what she has. I mean, a lot of people couldn't tell you Hillary Clinton's signature campaign issues yeah, I mean, fair enough. I, I think agree to agree to disagree on that. You know, I, I guess it's just, you know, I, I just want to make the point that I, I, I don't think that a lot of the leftist criticism of Elizabeth Warren has been in bad faith. Certainly some of it. There's, you know, certainly a lot of sexist in the world. But, you know, I know in my case, I, I actually started out feeling like, I'm pretty stoked about Elizabeth Warren, and it, it, it was Warren herself that uh, that led me to to lose that feeling. And while I still think that it would be infinitely better if she were the president, you know, I think that the the primary is is ultimately a zero sum game. Sure. Ultimately, one one person is going to win, and God hope it's not Joe Biden. But yeah. you know, I I have no problem with. Uh, Sanders or Warren drawing contrasts in their approach, in their support, in their policies, as long as what they're saying is true and not character assassination. You know, I actually think that that's very useful information for voters and is completely reasonable to expect in a competitive primary. And I, I, I just I think that this this went too far today and it, it really hit me in a, in a personal way as both a, a socialist and a feminist right and a socialist feminist right and this is so again and obviously i think bernie's campaign has been very good about this um and i think that this entire time um a lot of the vitriol that i've seen directed at elizabeth warren from bernie supporters i my my overriding thought is like this is not what Bernie thinks of Elizabeth Warren, and it is very counterproductive to focus most of your energy on attacking the person who is ideologically closest to you, whose supporters are most likely to support you, um, and I, or vice versa or whatever. Yeah, I just think it's. There's too much at stake right now. I just, I like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to like dignify this lunacy because ultimately not only are we fighting against Donald Trump in, in the general, it's like we are fighting against like 30 plus years of neoliberal rot and 
I think that it's just going to take all of our muscle. And I have been, yeah, today has been very frustrating and stupid. And I just want everyone to keep their eyes forward, move on to Iowa. If a progressive is going to win, whether it's Warren or Sanders, seems like Sanders is the only one with a real shot at it at this point. And if we are to uh, take polls and fundraising as some indicator, you know, the, the left will have to coalesce around someone. If for some reason Elizabeth Warren, like, won a bunch of early states and Sanders didn't, you know, I, I probably would start supporting Elizabeth Warren, although my beliefs are very different because I don't want to see Joe Biden win. Yeah. Now, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I don't, you know, but I, I think, yeah, I, I really do think that it is time for the, I, I think it's time to get, it's time for the left, at, at least if, you know, if it becomes clear that one is the, the clear uh, front runner um, or the person with the best chance of beating Joe Biden, I, I think that the left should, uh, should get on board with one of them. I, I personally would argue that that moment has, has already come, but uh, no, you I know, agree I can with understand. you. And I think yeah. that if like, I think that if Bernie wins, especially Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, moving into Super Tuesday, we are going to need all, all hands on deck. Yeah. Well, I, we reached a point of agreement and we also reached uh, about the time where we need to go <laughs> into our interview. So we have a, a very uh, awesome candidate uh, from Florida, Jen Perlman, that we interviewed. Uh, she's a leftist feminist and uh, we're very excited to talk to her. We, she's running against uh, Debbie Wasserman Stoltz. Uh, who you who might you... remember from being terrible and stacking the deck against against our precious boy. Yeah, and it was a it was a great conversation. We talked about uh, climate change, the DCCC, Prison and a bunch of other topics. I think you'll enjoy it. It's really good. Hello, and welcome back to Reply, guys. We are very excited uh, today to have a special guest with us. Um, she is running for Congress in Florida's twenty third district. Um, thank you so much for being here, Jen Perlman. All right, so let's start with the basics. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you're running for Congress. You know, I've been involved in one way or another in politics since before I was old enough to vote. And so I, with uh, my background is in journalism, marketing, and law, and I've always followed policy. And then after 16, after um, the DNC cheated Bernie, uh, things changed a little bit. So I started... <laughs> I started seeing the party very differently and I actually left. And then after 18, when I realized that there was an opportunity for some non-corporatists to actually break through, uh, it just seemed like a more opportune moment to get to get involved. And so given that we have closed primaries in a very gerrymandered district here, it, uh, the only way to do it is in the Democratic primary. Right. And and you have a. a a very particular uh, primary opponent um, in the landscape of of the 2016 election, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is a household name for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, yes. How important was it for you, someone who, you know, even as a constituent of hers, how important is it for uh, for your district to elect someone who reflects 
the values uh, that people in your district hold? Yeah, you know, it's interesting here because of the fact that we have closed primaries and we're so gerrymandered. It's unfortunate that that it takes very few votes for her to have stayed in as long as she has. It doesn't take a whole lot to keep her there. And the problem is, is that a lot of those type of voters are similarly situated to someone like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Even though our district is blue, it does tend to be more of a Biden blue than a Bernie blue as far as your regular super voters are concerned. So the biggest part of our campaign is really going outside of that box and bringing in people into the fold that aren't normally participatory or that have felt somewhat defeatist over the past however many years of noticing no changes. And, and so we're kind of, this is a very outside the box campaign in, in a way, like there are some of her people that will look at someone else like me and be like, all right, yeah, you know, she's local, she's from here too, maybe that's okay. But a lot of her people are just her people because they're her people. And so it, it's not so much as pulling from that as it is pulling in everybody else. That's such a good point. And I think that that's actually one of the things that uh, gets lost in polling very often is oh, yeah. um, polling almost always goes to the well of people who vote very consistently and the people who get left out of, uh, of those results are non-voters, which can be the deciding factor, um, or rather people who historically have stayed home, not non-voters in general, but you know, those can absolutely be the deciding factor in any election. Um, so I was reading about, about some of the issues, uh, central to your campaign, what would you say are, um, are your central issues? My three, I mean, all of our policy statements are on our website, but our three top issues that I think are the most relevant right now are Medicare for all green new deal. And for me, it's also criminal justice reform. And that's, that's more of, that's just my background and that's just what I know the most, but really healthcare and the environment are huge. I mean, where Florida is ground zero for climate crisis. We just are. And the fact that we, nobody in our district, no representative in South Florida has taken initiative on climate crisis. There's no solar initiative. There's, it's as if they're just pretending that this isn't happening. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe they do occasionally sign the right bill here or there, but certainly nobody is taking any sort of leadership position on it. And we're actually looking at a complete disaster down here as far as uh, infiltration of seawater into our drinking water. Absolutely. And I, I, I was looking on your Twitter and you did you did a poll and you said, you know, South Floridians, what what is your top uh, priority? And it was almost a dead tie between healthcare care and the environment. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Obviously, uh, I looked at where your district is and it's, you know, right on the South East coast. And I would imagine that there's been, you know, that that's a region that has been repeatedly hit by things like hurricanes and just other forms of extreme weather. And it's something that is very much in people's backyards there. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. And there's things that people don't even realize that are beachfront issues. And then there's issues that we have with inland waterways, 
um, and the Everglades and ultimately where our drinking water comes from. And we're basically, we're built on limestone. We are completely on very porous limestone. So as sea levels rise, that water is going to come up underneath us. See, everyone thinks it's a matter of just building a wall along the coast and that'll stop the, the tide from, which is ridiculous. But, you know, the, the, the fact is it's coming up underneath us. Yeah. And it's a, and that's a huge problem. And yet they keep building endless amounts of condos along the beach. And I'm wondering where are these people going to be getting drinking water in 20 years? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't understand how this is just something they just keep building. Like nothing's happening here. They do. And, and actually the, uh, the federal flood insurance, uh, program is on the hook for increasingly more and more of those luxury condos. So it's over the past 60, 70 years or so, it's become, uh, disproportionately shifted. The cost of, of those, of, of essentially rebuilding rich people's houses has yeah. gone disproportionately to the taxpayer instead of the people, uh, those people themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a crisis and when they build, and this is something that people that aren't local don't necessarily realize, but when they build and they dredge out, it's, it's so unfortunate because what they're pulling out to dredge are mangroves and sea grapes, which are the plants that filter our water. Right. So, so in order, and also they hold the beaches together. It's sort of like their roots are what really is needed in our ecosystem. And when they're dredging for, we're in Fort Lauderdale, which is not even in my district, but they're dredging for a hundred yacht marina right now. And so obviously that's to serve very wealthy people who have yachts. And in the meantime, they're pulling up all the plant life that's keeping our beaches from eroding and keeping our water filtered. It's, it's just unbelievable. (laughs) To what extent would you say that like voters in your district are conscious of climate change. Like, is it, let me think of it a different way. Is climate change something that feels politically important to voters in your district? Like do people, is it a, is it a motivating issue for uh, the folks uh, who live in that area? It's, you know what, it's a pretty even split because generally speaking, it's the younger people, the climate activists. I've got lots of high school kids that are my volunteers, and that is their issue. So the, the kids that are even our college-age kids and younger, their key issue is climate change. And then the older people, it sort of varies. You know, I don't know how many of them are really seeing it as impending. You have older people with this mentality of, oh, it's Florida. It's always flooded when it's rained here. I don't notice anything different. You, you know, there's some of that denial. And the, so there's definitely a split of priorities if you were to go down, let's say, everybody under 40 and everybody over 40 or you know, somewhere in there. But there, to me, the climate crisis is very impending and it has to be dealt with. Yeah, it feels so strange to me that I, I don't really fully understand the psychology of it. It feels so strange to me that this isn't, regarded as uh, an urgent issue for people like I would say even most people um, on the kind of more left side of things um, are are not prioritizing this uh, in how they vote and I don't know if that's just because it's so scary that people tune it out but you know I, I think it's a 
Yeah, I think it's a really bizarre thing that even people who understand that climate change is real are supporting candidates that aren't going to do anything like Joe Biden. Well, but now, and here's the thing where I kind of feel somewhat not sorry for those people, but I can see what the problem is. So if we have 90% of our media owned by six for-profit companies that are essentially profiting off of the fossil fuel industry and the military industrial complex, then the predominant information and the narrative that's out there is not going to be such that really motivates people to understand the, 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 like the critical nature of what is happening. So it's, it's, yes, there's people that are willfully ignorant and I do think it's scary and overwhelming, but certainly we hear way too much about things like, you know, uh, Hunter Biden, then we're hearing about climate crisis. So, you know, it really has to do with the dialogue in this country. And I think it comes from the top down. And so people that, and, and again, this is the age divide, people that are more dependent on mainstream media have a very skewed perception of what's going on versus the younger people who generally don't use mainstream media to get their information. So I, you know, I don't know that any studies been done on that, but I, I would, I never, when I put on mainstream media, which is very infrequently, but they don't ever talk about this. They don't talk about this. And when they do, they talk about it. Like there's a debate about it. Like, Oh, you know, uh, it's like, it's still up in the air somehow that this is happening. So on, on one hand, I, you know, yeah, people are ignorant, but on the other hand, over the past 40 years, their regular media has turned into propaganda government talking points, and they don't necessarily realize it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really uh, great explanation for what's going on, I think. Um, so I imagine that you've talked to uh, innumerable people in your community at this point. What is uh, the response that you've gotten from your uh prospective constituents um, on issues like Medicare for All and uh, the Green New Deal? I find that I spend an inordinate amount of my time basically deprogramming people and educating them as to what we're talking about. You know, especially again with the older people, you get these people that think that single payer means they're losing their choice, thanks to some key talking points from people that like to think that somehow picking your insurance company is somehow a choice. So I spend a lot of time educating and reprogramming, and actually, we're getting ready to put together a panel. I want to do three forums on our top three issues, and so our first will be Medicare for All. And I want to actually host it in a place called Century Village, which is all it's a 55 and older community because those are the people that have the most misinformation about single payer healthcare. But I do find that when people understand, they're incredibly supportive. And when you ask people in such a way that it isn't a scare tactic, you know, when you see these polls and they ask somebody, well, do you want to lose your insurance? Well, that that's not that you're not going to get a valid response from those kinds of questions. So I, I find that it's more educating at this point, but again, the young people and the people that are now up and coming and registering to vote, they know. And now to them, Medicare for all isn't as big of an issue as say climate and also um, tuition-free public college and student loan forgiveness. That's a big one with the younger people as well. But yeah, I mean, slowly but surely, I do feel that the concept of single payer is starting to permeate. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, the it was 
even as as recently as 2016, it was seen as kind of a dead in the water, non-starter issue. And now I think the needle has moved significantly on a national yeah. scale that it is a like, you know, basically it's it's Bernie's signature issue. And he is uh, consistently polling in second uh, of all the candidates. I think it's and I think it is very much to his credit, but also the the movement that he's built of um, yeah. his contemporaries who have been elected to Congress. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm very encouraged by, by how much public opinion has moved on single payer, even in the last three years. Yeah, well, whatever anybody says about Bernie and whatever happens as far as him getting a nomination, to, to not acknowledge how significantly he's changed the dialogue in this country is just a huge underestimation of what he's done because it, the whole concept of having non-corporate uh, representatives wasn't something that people were talking about really prior to that. Nobody was really even talking about that. And that issue is sort of like the crux baseline issue for everything else. So whether it's Medicare for all or Green New Deal or anything, nothing, and I tell people this all the time, nothing is going to happen until we get people that are not on corporate payrolls. It just won't. We're just going to keep circling a drain and arguing little we're arguing nitpicky parts of policy when it doesn't even matter because the corporations aren't going to let it happen anyway. So it's it's an it's sort of like this long chain of things that has to happen. Um, and the first thing is getting the money out. Absolutely. And, and that is that is another part of your uh, of your platform is overturning Citizens United, which I think I personally think is something that's not spoken about enough. Um, and I can't think of a more consequential Supreme Court decision in the last 20 years than Citizens United in terms of the floodgates immediately opening because you, yeah. you see the fact that the um, the midterms directly after the passage of Citizens United was just an outpouring of corporate money and dark money into and, and that is when that is there's a direct line to Democrats losing hundreds of seats. <laughs> and well, and there's also a line to Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Barack Obama for why Democrats lost lots of seats and how they managed the DNC. Um, Citizens United to me was the final nail in the coffin and it had been coming for some time. And I wish I could say it was just that. I mean, yes, we do have to overturn Citizens United, but it's, it's more than that. And I, I, my concern is that you can't wait for those things to happen. And so essentially what we're doing is we're relying on people that are willing to stand up and refuse to take the corporate money, even though they could take the corporate money and get enough of those people in there to then change the rules. It's, it's like a chicken and an egg thing. And, and so it's, it's like we got to get enough non-corporatists in there so that we could change it because otherwise we're, we're toast. That's how I see. I mean, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. No, that's completely correct. Can we talk a little bit about Debbie Wasserman Schultz and why it's really important that she specifically not be in Congress anymore? I'm sure you've thought a little bit about this. Oh, I've been she's been my congressperson for 15 years. Wow. So, yeah. And it's, it's most people know her from the 2016 fiasco. But her problems go a lot deeper than that. It's really a matter of like it is for everyone else. I wish I could say she was the only filthy person there. 
you know, and then getting rid of her would solve the problem. Certainly she is very symbolic of the problem, but the corporate, her corporate benefactors are, are pretty nefarious players. I mean, she, she takes money from all of the worst possible companies you could want somebody to take money from. So she has no incentive to work for us when she's working for them. And it's just more and more people are aware of it. I, you know, with Debbie, it's interesting. She has her small core supporters that are very put off and annoyed that somebody is there challenging her. And I deal with a lot of that with the very establishment Dems in my district. I'm kind of persona non grata to them. But to people outside of that, I've had complete strangers come up and hug me and say, I heard you're running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I don't even need to know you. I love you. Like, <laughs> Yeah, we heard the same thing from uh, Shahid Buttar in San Francisco, too, getting regularly hugged by people on the street. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the other one. And Shahid, I got to tell you, like, in my mind, more important than me winning is him winning. I mean, I, uh, Nancy Pelosi has just got to go. So, I mean, it, they're both important races. We just, they're just symbolically more important. But I think anybody who's on a corporate payroll needs to be replaced with someone who sees this as a term of service. And so the whole basis of our campaign is that it's a term of service. And so we are a community service campaign, the first that I've ever heard of. And my volunteers are always doing community service. They're out in Gen 2020 shirts doing service, whether it's cleaning beaches, serving veterans, serving meals, doing whatever. Like it's all service. It, when they're out and canvassing, it isn't just canvassing, they're doing community service. So it's, we're trying to show this district what representation is supposed to look like. Just to kind of change notes for a second, um, there was something really interesting that happened in Florida a little while ago uh, that I was really happy about, which is that uh, the right the right to vote was reinstated for felons, and then of course, I when I saw that, I knew that people would try to fuck with it immediately. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that happened and what the status is now? Okay, so the history, uh, I mean, a lot of this is goes back to the Southern history and slavery and Jim Crow and all of those things. And that's really what this what this all goes back to is just a way to keep disenfranchised people from voting. And Florida is one of the last states that I believe has had a permanent ban. Actually, we had a permanent ban on felons being able to vote. And so when Amendment 4, which is the amendment you're talking about, passed in 18, and it passed with, I want to say, 64% of the vote to restore felon voting rights, um, the people that did that amendment, they're known as, it's Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, or FRRC. And when they were constructing the amendment for the, to get the, it on the ballot, they had done several focus groups. And one thing that they that they realized is that if the legislation didn't specify that felons had to pay their debt, their financial debt, whether it's their restitution or their court costs um, before they could be reinstated to vote, that that amendment wouldn't have even passed. So, yes, it passed. And then, of course, the legislature wanted to our very Republican legislature wanted to come in and start nitpicking and seeing how they could limit it as much as they possibly could. And it's very frustrating, but it was very expected. So on the one hand, it's, it's a pain that these people are now having to jump through hoops, which 
is I believe this is unconstitutional because when you go, when they go into prison, their debt is converted to civil debt. Okay. So now what we're saying is, is you can't vote when you have civil debt. And that's ridiculous because we all have civil debt. Everybody with a mortgage has civil debt. We all have civil debt. So I don't agree with it by any stretch, but FRC was actually very pleased because ultimately what their real goal was, was to overturn the lifetime ban and that they were able to accomplish. And so they, you know, we still got to move more in that direction, but it was still a huge step for us. Absolutely. So, um, what was your introduction like to politics? Have you always thought about running for office or, um, was this sort of an idea that came about in 2016? Um, my first introduction to politics, I, I believe, was uh, in a stroller at the 1972 Republican convention in Miami Beach where my parents were protesting. Um, I, I was in, I, like I said, I was involved in politics. I campaigned for candidates before I was 18. Like I wasn't even old enough to vote and I've always participated in the process and it always mattered to me. And so I've always seen it as something that I understand and I have, I have an affinity for it and my, I just, I get it. I've been told many times over the years that I should run for office. And I always said the same three things, which, which quite honestly is I don't lie. I can't be bought and I smoke weed. And, you know, and, and what's, and what's interesting is, is that now, and I've actually had somebody tell me that should be my slogan, which I don't think that's true, but I I definitely think think it sounds pretty good. (laughs) Right. And so that really has been, and I've said that many times over the years, you know, and so they're finally now, and that's what I was talking about that I noticed from 16, even to 18 was that there's an opening for people to just kind of be genuine and actually get in there. And if we can do this as a grassroots movement, and yeah, there's no doubt about it that we're sort of piggybacking on Bernie's success or AOC's success and, and, and the people that have showed others that, yeah, regular people can still have a voice. And so, I, like I said, the timing was right for it, but it is definitely not, it is definitely not unexpected or completely out of character. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I think yeah, uh, in terms of uh, sort of analogous races, it's like AOC and Joe Crowley is a, I mean, he was another one who was uh, a high level um, representative in the Democratic Party. And that was another symbolic victory, the kind that you were that you were speaking about. And yeah, but Debbie Wasserman Schultz is um it shocks me. It honestly shocks me that she's uh, she's still around. <laughs> Only because of gerrymandered district and closed primaries. Yeah. If we had open primaries, she would have been gone 10 years ago. So that's and obviously it's like this by design and they've made it harder and harder to even challenge her. In 2016, when Tim Canova challenged her and I worked on his campaign, you were able to get your name on the ballot by getting a ballot petition signed by any registered voter in the state of Florida could put any other person on any ballot in the state of Florida. Well, they've changed it. Now it can only be a registered voter in your district. So instead of finding a pool of 5,000 people from the state, we have to get 5,000 ballot petitions from district 23. So they, they, they keep, they make it harder and harder to challenge her because, and I truly believe this, she's capped. Her numbers are capped. 
She's going to get the voters she's going to get, and that's it. She's not going to bring in new people. She's not going to go knocking on doors and say, hi, I'm Debbie, you know, vote for me. Her, the, the jig is up with that. So she just really has to rely on keeping low voter turnout in order to stay where she's staying. That's how it's been. Who are some who are some other uh, folks that, you know, of running in Florida who uh, maybe like yourself, who, who you're excited about? You know, well, Michael Hepburn was running as a BNC candidate. So he was like my slate mate. And he's he was challenging Donna Shalala, but he has since pulled out and is now running for state house, I believe. Um I am not sure what other progressives are running throughout the state that are that are challenging like incumbent seats. I, I have a couple of friends of mine that are challenging Frederica Wilson, but, you know, she's certainly not loathed at a level which would allow them to raise money like I'm able to raise by how many people hate Debbie. I mean, and that's ultimately what it what it comes down to is that even though she's not been great as a representative, She's a gift that keeps giving as far as fundraising. I mean, every time she goes in front of the camera, I get money. Wow. That's so I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are other, you know, but there's no one particular other progressive that's standing out in the state that I know of that's that's running. Uh, We were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the DCCC and their blacklisting of vendors that work with uh, challengers to incumbents. Has that affected you in terms of your ability to find people that can work on your campaign? Uh, yeah, actually it did. I, I call it the FATWA, the DCCC FATWA. And yeah, in the beginning, when we first started out, um, the person who was going to be doing my compliance bailed on us after that came out because she can't, you know, these are people that that's their livelihood and I don't fault them for that. You know, they rely on those jobs to make a living. So they got to do what they got to do. And I don't, I don't blame that. Um, it's also was incredibly hard to find finance person. I mean, it's, it's gotten easier now that people see this as I think more viable, but what it really comes down to, and this is more about us just being very selective we don't want anybody working on our campaign that isn't in it for the right reasons. So the kind of people that are working with us are the kind of people that don't give a crap about the DCCC. And, and that's really how we, we, like I said, we're, we're not going, even though I'm running as a Democrat, I anticipate no help, no support. No, we're not going through the democratic party. I feel like we're going around the democratic party. Totally. Since this is a a feminist podcast, I was wondering um, if we could talk about that for a second. uh, Would you call yourself a feminist? Sure. I mean, isn't feminism the notion that women should have equal rights? I mean, uh, to me, it's it's weird that that's even a term because it just should be a given. But yeah, you know, but just like that, I'm an everythingist. You know, I don't I, I I've never met a woman that hasn't been somehow violated in her life at some point. And so, you know, there's definitely more um, work that needs to be done in terms of like violence towards women, domestic abuse, those kinds of things. And yeah, the pay gap is obvious. That's not even a question. But I, I think that some of the policies that we're that we really are behind are things that will help with those issues. You know, paid family leave. I mean, when, when you make it equal for men and women, when a child is born, you're leveling the playing field for somebody to hire a woman as opposed to that would normally hire a man thinking, oh, well, he won't take maternity leave. Right. 
So it, unfortunately, you can't legislate morality, but you can make it so that women are as valued financially as men by policy. And that's, that's the start. I mean, I think that's the start. You can't make people think a certain way, but you can make them behave a certain way. I completely agree. That's a great way to put it. I absolutely agree. Um, since you mentioned that criminal justice reform uh, is something that you're very committed to, can you talk a little bit about what you would like to do in Congress regarding criminal justice reform? Um, the, and this this is sort of akin to how getting the money out is the first step to getting anything done. The first step in criminal justice reform is abolishing for-profit prisons. We, we cannot have a profit motive to incarcerate people. As long as there's a profit motive to incarcerate people, there's like this appearance of impropriety as far as I'm concerned on every single person that's incarcerated. So the first step is we have to abolish for-profit prisons and immigration detention centers, same difference. There should never be a profit motive for that. And then we got to legalize marijuana. We've got to commute sentences of everybody who's serving time for nonviolent drug offenses. You know, my understanding is of the 2 million people incarcerated, which is the most in the world, by the way, we're the world's largest penal colony. Um, about 30% of those people ought not be there. For various reasons, whether it's they've overserved time for something ridiculous, it was a nonviolent offense, ineffective assistance accounts, I mean, you name it. So 30% of 2 million people are essentially being wrongfully incarcerated right now. That needs to be handled first and foremost. But this, and if you and if you go on my website, we talk a little bit about it even on a local level, but there has to be police accountability and it has to be tied to funding, unfortunately, because apparently the only way to get people to do anything is to tie it to their funding. So we need to demilitarize police departments. And that goes to the overproduction of stuff from the military industrial complex. You know, it's so hard to separate issues because they're so tied together. But I look at police departments now and they look like military. They're just little military factions and they're not protecting and serving. They're physically policing. And, and, and of course it depends on the neighborhood. My neighborhood gets protected and served. However, a lot of the neighborhoods of my constituents get policed. And so it really just depends on the neighborhood, but we have to demilitarize the police. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be um, accountability for any sort of civil rights violations while in custody. But the first thing is taking away the profit motive and then decriminalizing marijuana. Those are like the first two things I think that have to happen in the right direction. Right. And I actually, I saw a study recently that the police departments that have those kind of like military grade weapons are much more aggressive and commit a lot more civil rights infractions than the ones who don't. So of course it's, and, and the thing is it's a vicious circle because when you have police departments with that kind of ammunition, mm -hmm. you're going to attract certain types of people into the police force. Like this isn't the Andy Griffith show where you've got people going in and they want to like look out for their neighborhoods. Police in neighborhoods are no longer from those neighborhoods. And we need to get back to where the neighborhoods are policed by people that live in those neighborhoods. Right. And so, but you have a certain mentality of somebody that comes into that line of work in the first place. You really do. And it isn't even just the bad cops, it's, it's good cops. There is a certain type of person that wants to do that. And when you're giving those people more and more militarized weaponry, 
I think you're almost escalating the that that whatever that is about those people that makes them want to be police officers. It's almost it's validating it. And it's all about the size of the weapons and the it's it's like little boys playing Fortnite. But it, it, it's just, um, yeah, I think if there weren't as many militarized police departments, there might not be as much of an interest for people to come in there thinking they're G.I. Joe. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's I mean, that's uh, e- even without even in non-police officers, that's such a big part of uh, the the purchasing of assault weapons in the first place and the cult, the gun culture in the first place, um, in, in terms of like high capacity guns, it is very much a GI Joe aesthetic that is being sold. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's really, it's really more. And, and I, the truth is, is that the banning of assault weapons, and I understand why people support that. I don't think it'll work. In fact, I, I have much evidence to support the fact that that really wouldn't change anything. Uh, there's more guns than people here. We're not New Zealand. You know, we, we it's not going to work. It just isn't. And what you'll do is create a black market and then it's even worse. But we have a gun culture because we have a violence culture. You cannot be the world's police and be killing poor brown people all around the world and not expect violence at home. And the only time people here care is when it's like a mass shooting and it's in like a more wealthy, you know, suburban type of neighborhood. Then, oh, my God, that happened. You go in the black communities here. They have more gun death from handguns on a daily basis than you would get happening at Parkland. And they don't get the same kind of attention. And there is definitely an amount of resentment that I find in black communities as far as the whole gun control issue. So the, the issue is that we are a violent people. We've always been a violent people. And now we have more guns than people in a society that is seven out of our $10 goes to fund our war machine. So for people to think that you can only keep violence overseas is incredibly ignorant. We, we glorify military, we glorify war, we glorify all of that. And it's no different with all these shootings. I think it's just our culture at this point. I'm, I'm guessing based on everything that you've said so far that you would not have voted for uh, Trump's huge military budget. Uh, one is that no way, no how. And the fact that they did while they're impeaching him, mind you. Yeah. So they're simultaneously saying you're not fit to hold office, but yet we're going to give you more money. See, this this is the cognitive disconnect of the Democratic Party, what I call Mick resistance. They don't really want to resist. If they really wanted to resist, then they wouldn't be funding the war. But they don't. They just want to look like they're resisting. And no, I would have never voted for that. Yeah. All right, Jen. Well, I know you got to go in a second, but uh, before you leave, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you uh, would like to talk to our listeners about? Um, yeah, sadly, it comes down to money. And we, we are a very, very grassroots, small dollar campaign. I think my average donation right now, I want to say, is like $36. I'm working on lowering it. Debbie's is something like $600. Um, and what we really need are monthly donors. So, And I, my goal would be for every Bernie volunteer to donate a dollar a month. If I had every Bernie volunteer donating a dollar a month to rid us of the woman who cheated Bernie, it would be, I call it the poetic justice campaign. So if people would go to gen2020.com and sign up, help with social media, donate whatever you can, be a monthly donor for whatever you can, 
That's the help we really need. And we are also on Twitter and Instagram at genfl23. That's great. And yeah, absolutely. I can guarantee you that we have a lot of listeners who hate Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And would be very stoked to support uh, an awesome leftist feminist congressperson. Um, (laughs) For sure. She just, you know what? Her time has come. It's time. She's just got enough of these people already. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, Jen, thank you so much for coming on Reply, guys. Uh, You're so smart and cool. And, um, you know, we really wish you the best with your campaign. And where are you guys based? Where are you? We live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Oh, okay. In New York. Okay. Excellent. Um, Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Every amount of interview, every amount of press, every amount of thing helps get get money in. You know, and I hate asking for money, but if I didn't, then my campaign manager would probably be really annoyed. Annoyed. (laughs) All right, listen up, reply guys. Uh, Give this woman some money. Give this woman some money. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jen. Jen. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours.